You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit with Dr. Michael Rogers, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Well, turn to God's Word with me and find Genesis chapter 8 in your Bible or the Pew Bible. The events surrounding God's work in the life of Noah and the tremendous judgment that came on the earth in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 is a marvelous story with many intricate pathways in it. I've tried to simplify and separate it into just three episodes, and there are a lot of things I'm not emphasizing But today's the third of those as we've looked already at this event so important in the history of the world. And I'm going to read beginning in Genesis 8.20 through the first 17 verses of chapter 9. Listen to God's Word, please. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease." And God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and birds of the air and on every creature that moves along the ground and even on the fish of the sea. But they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each man, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, All those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the entire earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And so God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. We live in a world built on promises. And we all know that promises are either kept or quite often broken and forgotten. There are many kinds of promises. They can involve formal vows and pledges that we make, legal contracts that are written out with our signatures and witnessed to hold us accountable. But then there are those many informal promises that we make every day. Oh, I'll be glad to do this for you. Or will you do this? Sure, I'll take care of that. Promises function in our lives in constant ways. They create webs of commitments, both formal and informal, that bind us to other people. And we all know that when such a promise is not kept or respected, we become disturbed. And relationships are liable to be damaged along with unkept or neglected promises. It's interesting how we put promises in the political world into sort of a separate category. We all know that politicians are elected by having platforms and making formal pledges. When I'm elected, this will happen, this will be done. And we all say, oh, yes, okay, Uh, we listened to that. We're glad you made that promise. But in our minds, we're kind of putting that in a separate mail slot and saying, Well, you know, we really don't expect politicians' promises to be kept most of the time, at least not literally and thoroughly. Well, the eternal God governs our world by making promises and by keeping His promises. And we have a special name for the promises of God. In the Bible, they're called covenants. The eternal God governs the world by covenants, promises made and promises kept. Now, let me just recap for a moment where we are in this progressive tale of Noah, true historic events here. Last time we saw Noah building the vast ark that was dictated by fairly specific design specifications revealed by God. And we saw how human affairs had degenerated so drastically through 16-some centuries from Adam that people were living in violence and godlessness and pride and self-sufficiency with scarcely a thought for the Lord God. In fact, so great that ringing phrase that they're the inclination, the whole bent. You know, it doesn't mean that every single moment they thought this way, but the complete bent of human thought was only evil all the time. It It was shadowed by evil in all ways. And God decided He would judge the earth. But as a token of His grace, He would call one man by by His grace, awaken that life, and that man, Noah, would respond 
to God with a great obedience and trust and carry out this amazing project of building this huge barge that would preserve life, both human and animal, on the earth. Many things about it, of course, make us say it's, it's fantastic, it's hard to believe, and yet it's reported here historically in God's Word, just as much as the journeys of Abraham or the adventures of Jacob and Joseph, anything else that's in Genesis, this is historical. And so we saw how the ark indeed was lifted by supernatural flooding that came not only out of the skies, but even from the depths, it seems, of the oceans breaking forth. And that wonderful phrase at the beginning of chapter 8 last time that I emphasized, that as people and animals were devastated and flooded, God remembered Noah. The promise-keeping God didn't forget what was going on. And indeed, he undertook to set this man and his family apart. Now we have Noah emerging from the ark, coming out into a newly washed world where there's, it's different. You know, there aren't any birds singing except the ones that Noah brought with him. And everything's different. It's a newly washed, judged world, kind of like a blackboard, you know, cleaned up at the end of the day, scrubbed clean, waiting to have something new written upon it. We find Noah, God's man, in a brand new world, ready to live again, but needing to live according to the promises of God. Now, one thing our text certainly tells us today is that God is not naive. He did not imagine that the flood had completely stamped out human sin. And as a matter of fact, the wonder of it all is God certainly knew that in saving this man Noah alive, he didn't save a sinless man. He saved a sinner. And he saved a whole family of sinners. The germ of the sinful nature that ruined humanity so badly was in Noah. And as a matter of fact, I'm not going to preach on it separately, but if you were to glance and remind yourself of what Noah got involved in in the latter part of chapter 9, an absolutely shameless, disgraceful sin of adultery with his daughters-in-law. Noah was a sinner, and God knew this. One writer commented and said, while the ark delivered Noah and his family from the judgment of the flood, the root disease that caused the flood was a stowaway passenger upon the ark. That's absolutely right. Noah brought his sin with him into the new world, and the Lord knew it. Now, the Bible primarily introduces a very important concept to us here in Genesis 9 today, the concept of the covenant of God. At least by name, it's introduced for the first time. God really made a covenant with Adam, but the name covenant wasn't put on it. Here for the first time, we we keep noting things that happen for the first time in these early chapters of Genesis. A couple of firsts are here. The very first time that we read the word covenant is here. The very first time we hear of an altar, although we've heard of worship happening before this and, and sacrifices being brought, but the actual word altar isn't used until here. And this concept of God taking one fallen but graciously rescued sinner, and now promising him 
faithful attendance to him and protection of him if he will only heed his way and worship him and see how God will govern is the theme of our text. And here these wonderful covenants, promises of God actually anticipate the fact that he's dealing with a failed being who's going to fail again. A being who needs an altar of sacrifice for reconciliation with God. And a being who will be encouraged and upheld by visible signs or tokens of what God is going to do put in his world. There are four points I want to make here today, and they're not real long because there are four of them, but four different things I want to emphasize from Genesis 8 and 9 here. First of all, that God's covenant rules all of history for the sake of his chosen believers. Now, most of us don't appreciate the role that the covenant has in the Bible. There are ministries that sometimes talk about the covenant so much, it's covenant this, covenant that, and until you, you just feel you're tired of the Word. But even when the Word isn't being used, the covenant is very important as a backbone principle in the Bible. Very much like the Constitution is a principle that sustains the United States of America. You know what the vow is or the oath that the president takes. You've, we've just been through an inauguration, and I don't know why Chief Justice Roberts didn't bring his note card with him, but you remember he fumbled the little oath that really isn't much of an oath to remember, but he messed it up, the oath that the president is supposed to take, which simply says this, that he will preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. It doesn't say, I come to establish myself as the ruler of the United States. The president, in coming into office, is saying, I recognize that there is a constitution, a written document, now well over 200 years old, a paper document that spells out principles and freedoms and and dictates the way in which we are to relate to one another, and I am the guardian of that document and all that it promises. Now, very much in the same way, the covenant of grace functions in the Bible. It really is God's constitution for human life on earth. And it's according to the dictates of his covenant, which are reiterated numerous times. Here it's reiterated to Noah. It'll come again to Abraham in a very notable way. Later on to David and others. God speaks his promises, his principles that are the constitution for how human life shall live. Now, he did it with Adam. It wasn't labeled a covenant, but it was that when when God said, here's what you are to do. Genesis 1, God blessed the man and woman and said, be fruitful and increase, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, and so on. That was the first statement. That was the Adamic statement of the covenant. Now we talk about the Noahic statement, if you want the technical term for this covenant being renewed. And the Lord basically restates in Genesis 9 what was said to Adam. The, the be fruitful and increase part sounds very familiar. We heard that before. But one of the things to remind you of is to realize that God has a plan at the heart of all this, and his plan is to save for his own glory and praise those believers whom he designs by grace to gather out of the mass of the world, 
call them, let them see him and fear him and know him, put their trust in him. And everything that happens to both the secular world, the creation itself, and unbelieving people is going to be determined by that central purpose that he has in working with his chosen believers. Now, we also need to be reminded that every covenant is something that God himself establishes on terms that he authors. They are his terms drawn up by his good pleasure. Now, this is foreign to our way of thinking. Sometimes we compare a covenant to a contract. Okay, we basically know what a contract is. Two parties, you're going to a store to buy something and you have to sign that you're buying something and you usually don't read all that fine print that tells you that you and the store are entering into a contract. I had an interesting experience just last week. About 12 years ago, I got a a Visa card. And the large, very well-known bank that I won't name in Maligne told me then, we're giving you a favorable rate, 9.95%. This is not a teaser rate. This is a permanent rate. I have it in a file at home. It says this is a permanent rate. Well, that was a contract that I had with that bank. Now, last week, I got a statement from them, very interesting statement, in which they said, we're changing your rate. Your rate is going to be 17.95%. Now, you have a right to decline this rate. Oh, I said, good, it's a contract. There's give and take. If you decline, your card will be canceled. I said, wait a minute. I thought we had a contract. I thought the contract said 9.9 was a permanent... Well, you know that somewhere buried in that interminable pages-long language that none of us ever read, it said someplace in the finest microscopic print that the bank had the right to do what they were doing or they wouldn't be trying to get away with it. So I'm not going to enter into an argument with them. We're used to contracts that are parties, you know, sort of give and take, negotiation. The covenant of God is not a give-and-take negotiation. Man does not bargain with God. We have nothing to bargain with that God is interested in. The crux of the covenant that God spoke to Noah is his guarantee authored by his own design and his own idea, I won't do this to the earth again. I've made a statement here. It's a devastating thing that has happened I'm not going to do it this way again. Now, mind you, that doesn't remove the, the potential and the certainty, in fact, of God's final judgment day coming. But he's saying as long as human life is going to go on in season and out of season, I don't intend to devastate the earth with a flood this way again. And that is the basic thing. But it's not a quid pro quo. God doesn't hold it out and say, here, I'll, I'll put a carrot on the end of the stick and say, if you people are just good... I won't flood the earth again. No, it's an absolute thing. God's saying, I won't do it. I'm not, it's not based on what you do for me. Here's what I will do. Here's the term of the covenant. And there's a sense almost in which the persons of the Godhead, you might picture Father, Son, and Spirit speaking to one another and say, this is our determination, and they let Noah listen in. This is how we're going to do it. This is the unconditional term for human life continuing on the earth. And everything that happens to all following generations of men and women will be the outflow or the consequence of our central determination to call to ourselves a people 
chosen by grace, who will be like the Noahs of the world. Those who come justified by faith as grace awakens it in their hearts and declared righteous in God's sight. God's covenant rules all of history for the sake of his chosen believers. Now, a second point to make here is seen in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 8. And that we need to be reminded of this. God's pleasing worship requires both humble faith and a sacrifice of blood. It's very notable, the first thing Noah did after he was coming down the gangplank of his ark. You know, I can see most of us, you know, at sea for a year, uh, not even seeing dry land, thankful, so amazingly thankful to finally be on land. You know, you'd go hug the first tree you found, I suppose, or something. And think of the situation. Here's Noah. He's got his family. He wants to get out of that ark, of course, and not continue living there permanently. All these animals are coming out of the ark. He's, if he wants the cattle or the chickens or, or something to be penned up for domestication, he's got to provide for that. He's got to build a shelter. He's got to find clean water. This guy's got a very long to-do list. And yet as he comes out of the ark... The first thing he did, as Scripture notes, is Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of the clean animals and birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord. I, I pointed out last time, 8.1, the remarkable phrase, uh, the important phrase of God remembering Noah. There's nothing actually remarkable about God remembering Noah. That's God's nature. If he makes a promise, he remembers it and he performs it. The remarkable thing is that Noah remembered God despite everything he'd been through. Part of his justifying faith is shown that this man had a consciousness of God and he comes off that ark with all these practical duties that he might have been immediately consumed with, you know, checking off his list. Here, Shem, you run and do this. Ham, get some firewood. Go build an altar. That's number one. You say, well, he was thanking God, right? Yes, he was. But it's very notable how this offering and sacrifice are described because later on we learn in the sacrificial system that thank offerings are not offerings generally involving the death of a clean animal. There are various kinds of thank offerings you can bring. But when a particular animal that is clean, that is according to dictates of God's uh, law and revelation about it are sacrificed by death on an altar. That's more than just giving thanks. That is an atonement offering. That is an offering that recognizes sin and is coming to God and saying, God, I need forgiveness. Here's my atonement. In other words, by what he did here, Noah was acknowledging his own sin. He wasn't only thanking God. He was saying, God, I enter this new world bringing my sin with me. And I plead before you that you would forgive me as you give me this new start. What a wonderful example this is of the primary place worship has to have in the life of everyone whose trust is in the Lord. We've got hundreds of things to occupy our time. You know, I love the things I hear uh, from all kinds of people over the years about why we, we go, we get in contact with members who've been long absent. Oh, yeah, well, pastor, you have to understand what's been going on in my life. I've, I've had this, and I've had this, and 
I just haven't been able to be at church for the last six months. We've got long to-do lists. Noah had a longer one. And the first thing he did was acknowledge the Lord. And you see that we come in much the same way. We don't build stone altars. There's no altar for offerings and and no exhaust system to take the, the smoke of burning pigeons out of this room because we don't need that offering anymore. We have a burnt offering, a blood offering, the death of Jesus Christ, the once for all Lamb of God. And we worship God in the way Noah did by coming around Christ and memorializing His cross and resurrection, laying claim to it, humbly bowing before it, thanking God for it, surrendering ourselves to the God who gave us His one perfect Lamb who died in our place. But we too need to worship and make that first as Noah did. Thirdly, this, an interesting thing that develops in the statement of this covenant in chapter 9 now. I'm going to state it this way and then tell you what I mean. God delegates to human government the regulation of the violence of sin. Genesis 9, 1-7 is a renewal, basically, of the same things, as I said before, that God had told Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, it sounds just the same. But it isn't exactly the same, beginning at verse 2. There's a new element. Because now you have, in the be fruitful and multiply commission, a recognition that as you go and do this, you're a sinner. And you're going to take with you the, the violence and the pride and the competition and everything that sin has brought upon humanity. God anticipates that that violence and that warfare and that trampling on one another is going to continue, just as it had risen to such a climax in the ancient world before the flood. God's a great realist. And he knows that even now the animal kingdom that Noah has helped preserve, notice what is said here, that even the animals are going to sense Fear and dread of man with their clubs and spears and arrows let loose in this new world. And more or less as a side observation, the Lord says, well, along with that, you're now going to eat meat as as food. I recognize you're going to do this. Remember, he told Adam, I've given you all the plants, all the fruit that grows. It was a vegetarian world. And now, in light of the sinfulness of man, the pride of man, the competitiveness and and striving and anger of man, it's as though a sign of the fall or a result of the fall is God recognizing, now you're going to eat meat. Now, as a meat eater, I'm glad this happened, even if it is a sign of the fall. You know, I'm glad that filet mignon and hamburger and whatever is is part of our diet. But it's, it's, it's an interesting little detail here to remind us that the killing of animals for food is actually an outgrowth of the fall and the fear, of, fear and dread of man being upon the animal kingdom. Right from that, you see, the text bridges. All right, you're going to be killing animals. I recognize that. That's fine. That's now part of the plan. But the Lord then recognizes, wait a minute, though. If this spills over into the killing of men, If it spills over into you rising up with your bow or your spear or your club 
as Cain did against his brother Abel long before this, and killing him. I want you to understand something. That is an absolutely different matter than taking an animal for food. Now, isn't it amazing? Often we speak in our world today about folks who, and please, I have to be careful. You know, I, I am not an animal hater. I am not suggesting abuse of animals is a good idea or anything of the kind. But isn't it amazing that in our world, the people who will raise up the rights of animals and exalt them almost to a, a place of worship and reverence are quite often the same people who've got the other part of this equation turned around who have no problem with killing the unborn child or something of that kind. God says, look, I want you to get this death thing right. Death of animals is going to happen. In fact, it can't even be a productive thing if managed correctly. I don't want you, you know, eating the raw meat with blood in it. There was a principle there that Leviticus would later develop, and I don't even want to go down that path right now. But a man's life, that's absolutely different. Don't be like Lamech was. Look back in Genesis 4.23. Remember Lamech, the guy who multiplied Cain's version of violence times 10, and he said, anybody who messes with me, well, you, you come against me in vengeance, and I'll kill 10 of your guys for every one you take of mine. The Lord knew that tendency was in people, and he said, look, I am going to hold men accountable life for human life. Now, I'll grant you the the word government is nowhere in this passage. But accountability for the taking of life is definitely here. As a foundational principle. And every ethicist looks at this passage and says, here is God's foundation in this covenant statement of the basic root principle behind capital punishment for capital crime. Not for just incidental little crimes, but crimes that intentionally, with violence, with anger, with malice and premeditation, go out and remove the life of another human being. And it's human government, we learn as the Scripture progresses beyond this. We had to bring in many other later developments, but we can know it as we look here that it is human government that was established to protect human life. That's why we have police why we have courts, why we have prisons, why we have armies. Because man is a violent being. And we need to be protected from others' violence. Why? Well, God tells us, because my image is in man. It's my spirit. When you rise up and destroy a man or a woman, you're attacking my own image. That's completely different than butchering a steer for your dinner. Much later on in Scripture, Romans 13 has Paul arguing that the civil authority, whoever he may be, whether he's a good man or a bad man, the civil governor or president or authority that's established, Congress is an authority that, quote, bears the sword on God's behalf to, quote, avenge the wrongdoer and implied to protect the innocent. Therefore, I think right here we have the beginning of God delegating to human government regulation for the violence of human sin. It's a primary reason for the very existence of the state. 
And when the state fails to carry out that responsibility, it is forsaking its core reason for existing in the first place. Finally, this. As we close this morning, I want you to see in the latter portion of what I read in chapter 9 how God gives with his covenant to Noah signs. God gives believers encouraging visible signs of his grace. He knew we are tactile people. We're, we're not just verbal people who are told something. It's good to be told something, but sometimes we have to be shown things. The promises God set forth here in his covenant for, with Noah were for generations to come. He knew we needed reminders. And so in verse 13, the Lord says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, I don't believe this passage implies that there had never been a rainbow before this. Nor do we think that it implies that rainbows are supernatural phenomena. There probably had been rainbows before. We certainly think there would have been. And people must have wondered at them in the ancient world. Oh, look at that. We know that a rainbow is a natural phenomenon. As, as droplets of water reflect the sun, or I think the right word is refract the light of the sun like a prism and the colors briefly show up in that beautiful phenomenon that we see. Who of us doesn't get excited at a rainbow? I don't care how old you are. When I remember as a kid, my, my sisters and I, somebody would see the rainbow after the storm and one of my sisters, hey, there's a rainbow! And we'd all come out of the house. Where is it? Where? And we'd all have to see the rainbow. And every once in a while, you'd see not just, you know, the partial arc, but only a few times in my life have I ever seen the whole arc. I'm sure some of you have that entire bow all the way across the sky from beginning to end. A beautiful, one of nature's beautiful signs. The Lord says, I'm taking this beautiful phenomenon and I'm making this statement with you. When you see this, know that I see this and I want you to be reminded and to think that I keep my promises and I will not judge the earth in the way that I did before. I want you to think on me (coughs) as God who is faithful to his promise. One of the great places where the rainbow appears later in the Bible is the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 3. And there it says, John saw a vision of God on his throne and a rainbow encircled the throne. The sign of God's covenant faithfulness encircled his throne in Revelation. Any sign like this is God's way of telling us that man's wrath, man's violence do not have the last word. The rainbow says God has not abandoned his creation. He's not finished. He's still dealing with us. He's the great promise keeper. And he brought other signs, and I don't have time to go into all of those, but just think of one when he stated his covenant to Abraham. He gave Abraham a sign. He said, Abraham, here you are, a childless old guy, almost 100 years old. You're going to be the father of nations full of people of faith, and they are going to outnumber the stars in the sky. Imagine Abraham looking at the sky thinking, really? Can God do something like that? Well, God did it. The children of faith who have the faith of Abraham do number like the stars in the sky in our time. 
Not only did God declare he would never again flood the earth here, but despite the continuation of human depravity and violence and competition and trampling on the earth by nations, God kept his covenant promise in the best possible way. Not just by being faithful to the earth, but by visiting the earth. He came to accomplish his covenant when he came in the person of Jesus Christ and was born among us in the likeness of sinful man and yet not a sinner so that he could die for us. You remember how God gave signs even then? He told the shepherds out in the field, here's a sign for you. Go and find a baby in town wrapped in swaddling clothes, newborn. There's your Messiah. God has promised on his covenant oath that his grace working in the gospel of Jesus Christ will keep moving through history and will triumph in the end. And any political or economic storm that rumbles and crashes and threatens will not have the last word. God who rules in history will have the last word. And when people of faith in Christ, who is the Lord of the covenant, gather to worship, gather around the central fact of that one who died, whose death and resurrection rises to God in our praises like sweet smoke off the altar, pleasing the heart of God. We can believe that there, the God of the covenant, smiles with pleasure on His people. And there, on those people, His faithfulness rests and continues forever. Father, You give us unusual things to get our attention. We thank you for signs like the rainbow. We thank you for the altar of Noah. Thank you for a sinner, that you saved a sinner like us on that ark, not some stainless steel saint who never went astray. We praise you for your grace. We praise you for Christ, who's the exhibition and centerpiece of that grace. We cling to him as Noah did, to your faithfulness. And we know you will not fail us throughout all generations. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.